0: Our scripture lesson today comes from the gospel, the good news of St. Matthew, uh, chapter 16. Let's share in God's good word together. Then Jesus told his disciples, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return? For their life, This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Jesus says, follow me. Jesus doesn't align himself with the powers of this world. Jesus' kingdom and Jesus' way is not of this world. Jesus warns us not to get so caught up in winning and getting our way in this life that we miss his way and lose our soul, our very essence of life. So let me say it more plainly. Jesus is not a mascot for your political party. Jesus is not your homeboy for your t-shirt. And Jesus is certainly more than a slogan on a bumper sticker. And let's be clear, Jesus, who is God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, is not a tagline to a political speech. Jesus is the way, the truth, and life itself. As difficult as this season is and will be between now and the election, we cannot fall for the pandemic of division. Jesus and Paul both warned that division would be a problem. And guess what? They were right. Right now, everything is politicized. Masks, reopening of schools, and even in-person worship. But here's the thing, friends. Jesus never fell for that trap, and neither will we. So let's get started. As a way of introduction, people don't want to follow Jesus. It's hard They want Jesus to take their side. And it's not hard to take a Bible and point out that, oh, yeah, look, Jesus believes like I believe over here in this scripture over here. Oh, no, no, no. Jesus believes like I believe over there in that scripture over there. And despite what you may have been told, God is not a Republican. God is not a Democrat. God is not an independent. God is not a libertarian. God is not any particular party. And neither is your church. While some things in the Bible may seem political, we are not and never will be partisan. C.S. Lewis said this a long time ago, and he's exactly right. He says, people who are fighting for quite opposite things can both say they are fighting for Christianity. And in our country in particular, this happens every four years. And quite frankly, as a pastor, it's a beating. Every August to November, every four years... The party who's not in power comes up with all sorts of things to say about how terrible our country is so that they can get in power. And then it just flips four years after that and four years after that or eight years after that. Because fear sells. Fear motivates. But fear is not what our God is about. Jesus is the king who came to reverse the order of things in all ways, in all times, in all countries, with all peoples. We have to understand this. We have to remember this larger context within which God moves and lives and has God's being. So let's take a look at what it was like for Jesus in first century Judaism, in the first century context. It looks like this. Well, first of all, there weren't just two parties in Jesus' day. There were four primary parties big ideologies. And the first were the Pharisees. And you'll see in the Gospels in particular that Jesus is in conflict with the Pharisees over and over and over again. He knew what they knew, but he wasn't in their camp. So you see, the Pharisees, they wanted Jesus to pick a side. Don't we all? Wouldn't we just love for Jesus to be on our side for him just to pick, just to choose so we can stop thinking and sweating and worrying and working? Come on, Jesus, just pick our side. They wanted Jesus to pick a side, but Jesus would not play their game. He goes, no, 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 I'm not playing that game. Scripture actually describes it in Matthew. He says this, Then the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap Jesus in what he said. So they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, another group, saying, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with the truth and show deference to no one. They love this about Jesus. For you do not regard people with partiality. Tell us then, What you think, is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? They're trying to trap him. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Then he said to them, Well, whose head is this? And whose title? And they answered, The emperor's. Then he said to them, Give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. I'm not playing your game. I'm not falling for that. It, I'm not in a tug of war between this group and that group. I came to reverse the entire order of things completely. So that's the Pharisees. They wanted to trap him. He wouldn't fall for it. Another group were known as the Sadducees. I always remember it like this. They're sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. Pharisees believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees did not. And the Sadducees wanted to make religious and political alliances with the rich and the powerful. The Sadducees were the clergy and the religious and political elite. So much so that when they rebuilt the temple, last week we talked about how the temple had been burned to the ground uh, in 586 with the Babylonian takeover and the exile. And so they rebuilt it in the time of Jesus. And when they did this, they actually worked with Rome to get that done. Now think about that. The very country that had taken you over and ruled over you, you're now working with them. To get your temple back? Well, it came with some strings attached that everything they did would be overseen, judged by, vetted by Rome, not by God. So, Pharisees, Sadducees, and then there were the Zealots. Judas was a Zealot. And Zealots are that group of people in the political action committee that march in the streets, they fight back against injustice. Now, and before too hard on the zealots, just remember that the reason they marched in the streets and they planned to reclaim... They they weren't people going in and raiding other countries. They were simply trying to take back which was theirs, what had been taken from them from Rome or had been taken from them from a different group. The zealots were those who had been pushed down and had the boot of Rome on their neck and they wanted to fight back. They wanted revenge for what had happened to their daughters and their wives and their sisters and their cousins and their brothers and their uncles. They had had enough and so they fought back and it would get them all killed pretty much. Uh, Just a few years after Jesus' death. But that's a different sermon. The zealots marched in the streets and planned to reclaim what was theirs by violence if necessary. And many people believe that's why Judas betrayed Jesus in the first place. That he wanted Jesus to show his power. To show them that he was fully God and to wipe them out. But again, Jesus wasn't playing those games. He wasn't in any one of those camps. And then we come to the scenes. John the Baptist was in a scene. The scenes... In my mind, were great people. They were really religious people. If you go to Israel today, right outside of Jerusalem in the Judean desert, there's a place called Qumran where the Dead Sea Scrolls are found. And there, the Essenes retreated to that desert to fast, to pray, to read scripture, and to perform sacred rituals. They have little baths, mikvahs there that they go, and they would go in and out of multiple times a day so that they would be prepared for the coming Of Jesus, the coming of the Messiah, the coming of God back to earth. And they were trying to live as people of light in a perfect and wonderful way. But they were really sort of in some ways the first monastic movement where they were separated from the world. And so Jesus moved in and out of all four of these groups quite regularly. And I want you to see how they related to one another and how they related particularly to Rome. So if you were a Pharisee, You didn't trust Rome. There's a great deal of distrust of the ruling power because you weren't it. And so you would work around them. And so we'll remember that when Jesus is actually, it's time for him to die in Jerusalem, the Pharisees, they take him to Rome to do their dirty work for them. The Sadducees, they actually are a step closer. They actually collude with Rome and they build the temple. They're part of the ruling party. They're part of the aristocracy uh, and folks who had been a part of the temple for centuries. The Zealots, uh, not only do they distrust Rome, they actively rebel against it, using violence if necessary. And the Essenes, they simply secluded themselves away from Rome. Well, what does this tell us about what Jesus would do today? Well, in our context, we have to ask the question, how does Christianity fit into a two-party system? The answer, it doesn't. No more than Jesus fit nicely in any one of those four categories, Jesus certainly doesn't fit in a two-party system. And here's a warning for all of us. If God has the same opinions as your political party, you're not worshiping God. You're worshiping your party or your ideology or maybe even yourself. But if God always agrees with you, it's not God. That we just have to be sober about. Andy Stanley, uh, in one of his sermons, he says it more like this. He says, if you are red or if you are blue, it is unbelievable how often Jesus agrees with you. (laughs) Yeah. Why do I say unbelievable? Because you can't believe it. right? If Jesus is always agreeing with you because you're red or you're blue, just don't believe that. But it is an important question, isn't it, friends? So if Jesus uh, are alive today, and Jesus is alive today in and through us, where is Jesus on this map? Because there are certain things in Scripture that will place Jesus over here. And there are other things in Scripture that are going to place Jesus over here. And some of you are convinced that Jesus is only in one section or the other. And friends, he wouldn't be Jesus if that were to be true. He'd be a politician. He'd simply be one more ruler on this planet at a certain given time. Of course Jesus is bigger than that. He is God himself. And so you say, well, if Jesus isn't red and Jesus isn't blue... Well, well, what color represents Jesus? Well, in the Bible, in the Scripture, it's purple. Purple represents royalty and Christ's sovereignty. When we are, we are a part of a denomination that um, recognizes the different seasons of the church year, we're about to come up to Advent uh, right after Thanksgiving. And Advent are those four weeks that lead to Christ coming into the world. And we drape the church in purple. Because our king is coming. We have Christmas and then we have Lent. And again, what color do we use for Lent? But purple because Jesus Christ, the king of the world, is coming. At Easter, he will be raised from the dead to know that he is king of kings and Lord of lords. Friends, he's not playing the political game of this world. He is ushering in a completely new deal, a new game, a new kingdom. And in case we missed it, or the religious people of Jesus' time missed it, and as we miss it often even today. The world could not miss it. God made sure that we did not miss who Jesus really is. The scripture says that Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged, and the soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they dressed him in a purple robe. And they kept coming up to Jesus, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and striking him on the face. And Pilate went out again and said to them, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no case against him. He didn't want to play the game either, but he was trapped. The religious authorities had brought him to him. He understood that Jesus hadn't done anything wrong, but he was stuck. He didn't want to ride on his hands, and so he brings him out. Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe that Pilate had placed upon him. And you'll be interested to know that in Greek, the word for purple includes everything from the deepest blue and violets to the reddest reds and crimson. And everything between all those things from the deepest blue to the reddest red, purple represents them all, as a part of them all. And Jesus is purple for you, wherever you are, because red and blue just can't get you there. So... Pilate said to them, here's the man. And you want to know what Jesus' world looks like? looks like this. There's not a place on the planet that Jesus hasn't already gone to welcome you by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's not a people that he doesn't care about. And when we are at war with someone else, Jesus loves them as much as Jesus loves us. And I know that wigs some of you out. But here's the thing. In your life and in my life, Jesus loves you when you're in the right and Jesus loves you when you're in your wrong because it's about the character of Jesus and about His kingdom, not about our earthly kingdoms. And we can never be more concerned with winning than loving because Jesus was most concerned about loving all of His children all around the world. And He proves this over and over again with His life. So what did Jesus do? Well, Scripture says Jesus humbled Himself, who, being in the very nature of God, Paul writes, did not consider equality with God something to be used or exploited to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. God himself, he chose to become a servant and a servant is one who leverages their life to help others. A servant is one who wakes up in the morning thinking, how can I help others? And because this is true of Jesus, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord of all to the glory of God the Father. I want you to think about this that the best possible person would suffer the worst possible death. Jesus did not come to win a tug of war between the kingdoms of this world. Rather, Jesus came to establish a completely different kind of kingdom altogether, with a completely different set of values, where the last would be first and the first would be last, because in heaven, in Christ's kingdom, there is no first. There is no last. There is only love for everyone, peace for all healing and wholeness and food and reconciliation and meaningful work for all. So what's the book on Jesus? That he humbled himself and that he served others. That's what God chose to do. If you come to the last night of Jesus' life, he's at the table at the Passover meal and Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, he gets up from the table, he took off his outer robe and tied a towel around himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was tied around him. You see, friends, the church looks more like Jesus when we serve others rather than ourselves. Andy Stanley goes on and he says the church looks more like Christ when we are giving away rather than demanding our way. The first generation of Christians we find described in the book of Philippians and in the book of Acts chapter 2. These eyewitnesses of Jesus refused to leverage power or privilege for their own benefit. They sold land and possessions and gave the proceeds to any as who had need, anyone who had need. They were there for others. They took up their cross and not their rights. And if the church is going to have power and influence and impact that changes the world again today, we will have to do this again. We are not to mimic the bad behavior we see online. And all around us these days, Jesus' call remains, follow me. Notice, friends, that Jesus never played the God card. He never said, I'm God, get in line. So if Jesus never played that card, if Jesus never played the God card for his own benefit, well, come on, neither can we. Jesus came to seek and to serve and to love the lost. And if we are his people called by his name, if we are the body, then we exist also for others. In Jesus' good and mighty and loving name for all people. And the third thing that Jesus did was he prayed for unity. He knew we would need it. When he gathered disciples, he says this Holy Father, he's praying. This is the prayer of Jesus. You may not know this. Jesus prayed for unity. He's praying against the spirit of division. He says, Holy Father, protect them in your name that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and me. That they may all be one. Why was this Jesus prayer? So that the world would know God's love. Because when we're eating each other, devouring each other, tearing each other up, the world don't have anything to do with us or the message that we claim to have that's not of Jesus anyway. Jesus goes on, Gospel of John. He says, as you, Father, on me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That's how they're gonna know, is how we love one another, how we're unified. The glory that you have given me, I have given them so that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become completely one so that the world may know that you sent me. That's how the world knows. And I've loved them even as you have loved me. And I would really love to leave it there because threes are great. But here's the thing that I have to say out loud. Because I'm your pastor, because I love you, and I don't want this to happen to you. Because when we forget this, when we forget that we're to be people of unity and service and humility, something sneaks up on us and it sneaked up, even, snuck up even on the first disciples. And that's this, that Jesus rebuked those who thought they were better than. He'd have nothing to do with it. And the word he uses, rebuke, when he gets on to the disciples about this, is the same word he uses when he confronts demons. This is recounted in Luke chapter 9. It says this, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He knows that he's got to go. He's not going to win. He's going to lose his life so that you and I might win. And he sent messengers ahead of him. On their way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him, but they did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, James and John, of all people, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? They were still living in the kingdoms of their world. And they wanted Jesus to pick a side and to blow up the Samaritans. But Jesus turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another town. He's like, that, that's not what I'm about at all. Come on, guys. So we're left with the question, what will we do? Really, what will we do? Well, we have three core values here at Acts 2. And I want to share them with you because they come exactly from these scriptures. We, we didn't just make these up. Uh, we prayed about these. Uh, The strategic planning group uh, validated these. Your administrative council went through these and approved these. And it all comes from Scripture. It all comes from Jesus' life. And the first thing we're going to do is like Jesus did. We're going to humble ourselves and welcome all. Say that with me. Welcome all. Whomever God sends, that takes some humility because we don't know who God's going to send. We don't know who God's going to show up online. We don't know who God's going to bring to our doors when we do in-person worship. We don't know that. What we do know is we're going to welcome them as if they're Jesus himself. That's what we do. You see, church, to really be church, requires people who vote differently than you do. Because if everybody votes the same way you do, you're not a church. You're at a political rally. So again, back in Philippians, it says this. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, there it is again, in humility, regard others as better than yourselves. The second thing we're going to do is that we're going to love those who show up authentically. The real deal. We will love and serve people with whom we disagree. Because that's what Jesus did. That is the hallmark of the church. And in case you wonder what this looks like, this is a perfect time to reach out to somebody who's hurting. It doesn't matter if you know their political persuasion. Do you know their need? Let's take a look. That's what that looks like. She's not asking Miss Kavanaugh, hey, who are you voting for? She sends her a card, reaches out, connects in love. Church, we can do that. We can do that this week. Because again, the Bible teaches us, let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interest of others. That's what Jesus did. That's what we're going to do. And finally, we're going to let our light shine. We say it every week. We close every service with let your light shine before others. We are going to be ridiculously kind. We're going to do things that might not make sense to the world. We're going to send cards to people we hardly know maybe we have never met. We're going to love people right where they are. We're going to bless people with whom we disagree. Because the golden rule is always the right rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's really quite simple. If you don't want people saying bad things about you online, don't say anything bad about someone else online. If you don't want somebody making assumptions about your beliefs, political, religious, or otherwise, then don't make assumptions about other people's beliefs. Be there, ask them, follow the golden rule of Jesus. Let your light shine. And you're like, well, hold on, hold on, hold on. That's very religious speak. What, What do you mean by that? I bet many of you have already seen this. It has more than a million views on YouTube. But I just bet that Jesus would be really happy if you and I took a lesson from number 50. Let's take a look. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ridiculously kind, putting others before ourselves. The joy of the Lord shown around. The glory of God visiting humans on earth. I love that. Be number 50. Lift another up. We're never more like Jesus than when we're blessing others. It doesn't have to be about us. It can be about something bigger, something better, something more full of joy in this world. Scripture says, do all things without murmuring and arguing so that you may be blameless and innocent children of God. Without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in which you shine like the stars, let your light shine. I want you to know what's possible, friends. We can model for our community what it is to live together and disagree politically and love unconditionally. We can do it. You can do it. You can help. We can disagree politically and love unconditionally right now. The world desperately needs it. So our action steps for this week. They're not easy, but they are important. Number one, humble yourself by allowing Jesus to determine your political views. You may have heard of WWJD. What would Jesus do? Well, guess what? Jesus is God. You're not God. So the real question is, what would Jesus have me do? Right? That's our question. Okay, Jesus, what would you have me do in this situation? What's the next loving thing I can do? What is the golden rule in this situation? How can I be a blessing? How can I let my light shine? How can I love authentically? How can I welcome and bless all? So, secondly, really serve someone this week with whom you disagree politically. Maybe you've got a person in your neighborhood who has a yard sign that's driving you crazy. Bless them. Care for them. Serve them. It'll probably freak them out, but do something nice. Be kind. Serve someone with whom you disagree this week. And then finally, and this is super important, friends. Maybe you've never done this. I want to ask you to pray for your church every single day. It's so important right now. Pray for us. Pray for yourselves. Pray for the church universal. Pray for our denomination. Pray for Acts 2, your local church. For unity. Innovation and impact. That 2020 and 2021 would be years that we do more good for more people. We feed more children. We heal more people. We help more people. We lift more people up. We make more marriages stronger. We make more children um, wonderful human beings. We help them raise up in the way that leads to life. And you may not know how to pray, so I want to share a prayer with you. Not that I made up or even one of my colleagues, as good as those can be. I want to share with you a prayer that has stood the test of time for nearly 500 years. It's from the Belgic Confession, Article 29, in the year 1561. I want you to pray this prayer with me. Great God, make your church a magnificent witness to the nations, a wise and understanding people. Mark us with generous faith a community that follows your commands and avoids evil, a people who single-mindedly love you and their neighbors. May your church be the cause of joy in the world. In Christ's name, amen. Now that's a great prayer. I invite you now to pray the greatest prayer of all that was taught to us by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come.